Good morning. I'm glad you guys are here today. My name's Kayla. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I'm so glad that you chose to come and worship with us this morning. And hopefully we'll get to dive into God's word together and learn from him. Today we're actually going to finish up a series called This Is Church. This was a series where we looked at what the church is supposed to be like. Big C Church, all believers everywhere. But also what we're after here at Northgate. What defines who we are here at Northgate? We started out talking about our mission and our vision. Our mission is the overall purpose of Northgate, and our mission is to help unchurched people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And then our vision is how we see that mission playing out. So we see, we, we see our mission, and then our vision is how we see it playing out, and that's the thing you hear me say every week. We absolutely envision transforming our homes, communities, and world by pursuing God, building community, and unleashing compassion. And we see that playing out because we, we think it's both descriptive of who we are and who we want to be, but we also believe it's descriptive of what happens. What happens when we pursue God, build community, and unleash compassion is that our lives are transformed. Our homes are transformed, and if our homes are transformed, our communities will be transformed. And if our communities are transformed, our world will be transformed. In fact, we saw that from the very beginning of the church, way back 2,000 years ago, we saw them transforming their own lives, their communities life, and now we get to sit here in San Francisco, California, 2,000 years later, talking about the Jesus that they loved so much that he, it allowed them to be transformed by it. So then we spent the last four weeks marching through our values as a community of faith. We value being people in process. We value a grace-filled community. We value generous living, a lifestyle of worship. And today we're going to talk about our value of redemptive relationships. If our mission is the purpose and our vision is how it plays out, our, our values are the character we hope to embody along the way. And we, we didn't look around and say, man, what should we value? What, what sounds good? What might attract people? We said, okay, what does God value? And they became our values. And so today, as we talk about redemptive relationships, we're going to look straight at the heart of God and see what he says about relationships. And we're going to see that in every case, he sees relationships as something that can redeem the world to himself. And we can see the heart of God every time when we look at Jesus. In fact, if you want to know what the heart of God, if you want to know what God thinks about something, you need to look no farther than Jesus. We had God living here on earth with us in Jesus, and we get to hear his story in the Bible. So today, in this particular case, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you want to grab one in front of you, Luke is in the second half of the Bible. It is in the New Testament. Luke is one of the four Gospels. Um, the Gospels are four books that describe and tell the narrative and the story of what Jesus was like when he was here on earth from birth all the way through his ministry and then to his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Now, in Luke 15, we're to the part where Jesus has been in his public ministry for a while, and we see him um, encountering this particular group of people called the Pharisees. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time or if you've done any reading, you see that word pop up a lot. You hear about the Pharisees, and it's one of those things that we can kind of blush over. But to understand why this was important, the Pharisees were the religious elite, They were a group of people, they were religious leaders. People looked to them, they were highly respected. They liked to follow all the rules because they believed that got them closer to God. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus will encounter, and he's encountered them before, in fact. In fact, they weren't a big fan of Jesus. See, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And they did not like all the attention he was getting. See, at this point in Jesus' life, he had been healing people. He had been encountering people and and giving them both physical healing and relational healing. He was preaching things that, that turned what they believed about how they did life upside down, on its head. And he was gaining in popularity, and the Pharisees were consistently trying to trip him up, maybe asking him questions that he would have to answer, and, and they, would, they would twist it and take it the wrong way. And that's what's happening here in Luke 15, starting in verse 1. But we also meet another group of people, and we're going to stop. Verse 1, it'll preach all by itself, but I promise we'll get to some more. Verse 1 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Honestly, we could probably stop right there and preach an entire sermon on just that. See, the tax collectors and the sinners were all what? Gathered around to hear from Jesus. And this wasn't the first time. Jesus was always having people that were um, the uncouth, the ones that were, were pushed aside, the ones that people looked at and went, yeah, not them. They're the ones that your parents warned you against. They're the ones that you hoped your kids weren't friends with. These are the people that were gathering around Jesus. And that right there should tell us a little bit about the basis of redemptive relationships. I don't know about you, but when I look around, when I look around my life, I wonder if the same people that wanted to hang out with Jesus are the kind of people that want to hang out with me. It goes on, verse two. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law looked around at the kind of company Jesus was keeping and they said, hold on, this doesn't make any sense. He's a rabbi. He's a good teacher. Jesus was a good Jew following the rules. He was preaching the word. Why would all of this riffraff want to be around him, and why would he eat with them? There was even law against eating with unclean people, people that didn't follow the same rules, that that didn't do life the way that you did. There were laws against that, and yet Jesus instead, he seemed to be a fringe magnet, Everywhere he went, they flocked to him, and instead of creating distance, he welcomed them. He asked to go to their house to eat, and this confused the Pharisees because this was not a part of life that they would be a part of. Jesus heard their muttering, and he answered them with a story. He didn't just answer them with one story because, like me, the Pharisees are a little hard-headed. He had to give them three. 
and he gave them three in a row, and they kind of build on each other. The first one he told is the story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, a hundred sheep, but one went lost. And the shepherd, he left the 99 sheep that he had, he went out and searched for the one that was lost, found it, put it on his shoulders, and came back and then threw a party to celebrate that he found the lost sheep. Jesus was not being vague here. He was looking right at the Pharisees at that moment. And just to dispel any doubt, in verse 7 he says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. But he wasn't sure if they got it. I don't know if they just had a blank face or what it was. So he went on. The second story he told was of a woman. She had 10 coins, but she lost one of them. First of all, I would like to say that I relate to this. I lose things all the time. I'll be honest though, I'm not even sure if I would have looked for it. (laughs) I'm just not sure, but this woman, she did. In fact, she pulled out all the stops. She lit a lamp, swept the house, looked for that coin until she found it. And then when she did, the story Jesus told is that she threw a party to celebrate finding one of her coins. My kids won't even say yay with me when I find my keys. But this lady, this lady, she, she throws a party to celebrate finding a lost thing. And Jesus wants to be sure they're catching on. So in verse 11, or verse 10, he says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But he's still not sure if they're getting it. So he had some nuance to it this time. And he starts another story about a man who had two sons. Verse 11, the younger one, the younger of the sons, comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, Jesus doesn't take any time to explain what that would mean. Because in that culture, it would have been clear to his audience immediately what kind of ridiculous request, disrespectful request that would be. That request was akin to the son saying, listen, I know that I get half of all of this when you die, and I kind of wish you were dead now. Can you give it to me now? I don't want to wait. My relationship with you, that is nothing in comparison to what I want from you. And the father hears the request and divides the shares between his two sons, the younger and the older. Not long after that, the younger son took all that he had, all of that stuff he just got from his father, and he goes out to a faraway country, and he wastes every bit of it partying. All of it. He lives the high life. He's spending money like it's his job. And as it happens, he ran out of money. And right when he ran out of money, that same land went through a horrible famine. So now his pockets were empty and nobody else had anything to give him. Those friends that were around when he was partying that loved being a part of all of that, they strangely disappeared whenever he was in need. He was desperate. He was destitute. So he went and found a job and the only job that he could find was feeding pigs. 
He worked for a landowner, a, a farmer who had pigs, and he fed the pigs. And while he was feeding the pigs, he was so hungry, so desperate, that he wished, the Bible says that he wished that he could eat some of the food he was giving to the pigs. That's the state of this young man. We call that rock bottom, I think. He'd hit it. And at rock bottom, he remembers his father's house. And he doesn't just remember his father and his father's house. His mind wanders to the people that worked for his father, the servants that likely took care of him. As a son in a home like that, those were his servants too. And he remembers how they were treated. And they were treated far better than he was being treated right then. And so he decides in his desperation to go home. He decides he has no other option and he's going to go home. But first, he practices what he's gonna say. Have you ever done that before? You know it's gonna be a hard conversation, so you just practice what you're going to say over and over. I love it because the Bible actually told, tells us that he's thinking about what he's going to say to his father. And it's a big deal. He should be thinking about what he's going to say to his father. After the last time he talked to him, it better be real good. Here's what he practiced. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This young man is clear on his position. He's very clear on what he did wrong. He knows where he stands or where he should stand with his father. This would be an unacceptable place for a man to be in that culture. There would be no getting back to it. He had all but wished his father dead, and now he was desperate going back to him and just says, please, I, I know I can't be your son, but let me be your servant. And this was a big deal because if the young man had been rejected by his father, which he fully expected, no one else in the community would have had him either. There was no plan B. This was it. This was it for the boy. And here's where the story takes an unexpected turn, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then the son tries to get his prepared speech out. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he's cut short because the father starts giving instructions to the servants. The father's like, yeah, 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 no. I need you to go get a robe for this guy. Do you see how he's dressed? Go get the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Go get a party ready. My son is here. My son is back. And I don't know what the son was expecting, but I don't think it was that. But that, that is the story Jesus starts to tell his people. I can almost see him looking at the tax collectors and the sinners at this part of the story. He lets his eyes go to so many of them that he is healed and welcomed and allowed to be part of his community. The ones who heard the Pharisees grumbling just like Jesus did. The ones who were those people. Jesus makes eye contact with the outcasts in the crowd as the father of the story explains to all who are near, verse 24, for this 
son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they all began to celebrate. This is the Disney ending we want. This is the only kind of movie I will watch. The ones with the happy ending. The boy comes home, the father is celebrates. It's even a surprise ending. But like a movie that couldn't leave well enough alone, like the kind my husband watches, and the kind that will probably win Oscars tonight, there was a twist. And I imagine at this moment, Jesus turning his gaze to the Pharisees instead. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The servant explained what had happened earlier in the day to this older son. He explained what the father had done. I can imagine this servant excitedly telling this, this older brother, dude, your brother came back. I was pretty sure your dad was gonna kill him, but he didn't. He did the opposite. He started having a party instead. That's what you hear right now. That's the welcome home party for your brother. This is amazing. But the older son, he didn't have that same reaction. In fact, he refused to go into the party. Verse 29, he answered his father. Oh, he answered his father. Because once again, the father went to his son. The father ran down the road to meet his son that had gone far away, and now the father leaves the party to go to his other son. He goes to him and he's like, come on, let's go. But the son says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Pause. You're gonna bring up a goat in that moment? That's gonna be the thing. Okay, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This young man had done all the right things. He stayed when his brother went. He got the same size of check, but he stayed. In fact, he probably had to pick up some of the slack that was left when his younger brother left. He stayed, he was faithful, he did the right things. He was the responsible one. But verse 31, you hear the father's response, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that was it. That was the end of the story. It's like Jesus did a mic drop right there. There was no more explanation needed. Jesus was letting us peek into the heart of the Father, and not just the Father in the story, but Father God the one that does the very same thing for each of us. And with that last story, Jesus kind of raised the stakes for everybody in the audience. To the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, they had gathered around Jesus and they heard these stories too. Do you think they knew? 
How many stories in do you think that they started to make sense of the feeling that they had always had around Jesus? They were able to start to put words and and images to how Jesus made them feel, how welcoming he was, what he was trying to say over them. How many stories in do you think it was before they realized they were the lost sheep that he put on his shoulders? They were the lost coin that she called the neighbors in to celebrate after she found. And now they were the son whom the father ran to. Much like the prodigal son, there was likely no question in their mind where they should stand with the father, where they should be in the eyes of a holy God because of their behavior, because of their lifestyle choices, because of what they had done and where they had been. But now Jesus was describing a redemptive relationship, a relationship that would change everything for them. He was inviting them not only to be saved, but to be part of the family. Not just wiped clean, but to start experiencing the wholeness of who he has created us to be, the wholeness of this family. That's what he was inviting them into. So could they believe it? Would they accept it? Could they really belong? Would they step into a redemptive relationship with Jesus and those who follow him? He raised the stakes for the Pharisees too. The ones whose judgy mumbling led to Jesus' trio of story answers. They had belonging. They already had that well-respected, well-defined group of religious leaders, the religious elite, the ones that were doing everything right. They belonged to something. They prided themselves on doing the right thing and helping others see how they could do the right thing too. They were the group of 99 who didn't get lost. They were the nine coins that stayed on the table. And now they were the son who stayed. Author Henri Nouwen writes about it this way. Not only did the younger son who left home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do, but interiorly, he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. There turned out to be two lost sons in this story. But would they recognize their lostness? Would they identify in that story that that was something to be redeemed? Would they step into a redemptive relationship with a Jesus who would swing wide the doors for them as well? And where do you see yourself in the story? You know, we've all been the coin, the sheep, the son that went away. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so by definition, we are lost things or we were, do you remember, do you remember when the shepherd came for you? Do you remember when you were found? Do you remember when the father come running at you and then wanted the whole world to celebrate that you came home? 
We've all needed a father to see us from far off, to tuck up his garments and come bounding toward us with open arms. But are we willing to be found? Are we willing to step into a relationship with Christ that will redeem and exchange our death for life? Sorrow for celebration. Are we willing to step into that kind of relationship? And maybe you, like me, have followed Jesus for a little bit and you are finding yourselves in the seat of the older brother every once in a while. The one who is dutiful and obedient. The one who belongs who knows what is good and what's bad. They know the rules. And sometimes we can take such pride in our belonging that we think we might have had something to do with it. We get so proud of who we've become that we forget that we aren't the ones that become it. That it is Jesus in us that is transforming us. It's his righteousness that people see. Without him, no lost every time. We become known more for what we are against than what we are for. Our righteousness repels people like the Pharisees instead of attracting people like Jesus. We become gatekeepers of our relationships, making sure that only the good kind get in. But Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And then after he went to the cross and he rose from the dead three days later, right before he ascended to heaven, he gives his disciples final instructions and they're for us too. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. He invited us into his mission he said, I came to seek and save the lost. And then he says to his followers, and let's go. He invited us into the mission, our mission, to seek and save the lost. You see, we aren't bouncers for the kingdom of heaven. We're a part of the search and rescue team. We don't keep people out. We invite them in. And we do that through relationship. We do that through our lives. We do that through the people that God puts in our path and in the way that he does with us. Our world will never get the help it needs if the church, the people who have experienced the redemptive relationship of Jesus Christ, don't turn around and live like they've experienced redemption. You've heard it said, hurt people hurt people? Well, redeemed people redeem people. Now, there's no need for a savior complex. You can't save anybody on your own. That job is strictly for Jesus. But here's the mystery. God invites us to be a part of that saving process. And he invites us into with, redemption, with redemptive relationships. That's why we value them so much here. That's why it's something we talk about all the time. Every relationship in your life can be a redemptive relationship. And I mean it, every single one of them. Not just the big ones, right? If you're married, yep. That relationship can be a redemptive relationship. It can point people right back to God. 
How often is your marriage a redemptive relationship? How often are you pointing your spouse back to God, believer or not? And what does your marriage relationship say to the world about who God is? If you're a parent, your relationship with your children can be a redemptive relationship, not just making sure that your kids know that God loves them so much, but it also can show the world what it looks like to be loved. Do you have a neighbor? That relationship can be a redemptive relationship. Do you have a horrible boss? Jerry, don't answer that. Your relationship with your boss can be a redemptive relationship. Are we friends, you and me? We can have a redemptive relationship. I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus' love in how you treat each other. And the world can see Jesus by the way we treat one another. But in that great commission, it goes a step further. It goes to intentional relationships that we have with people that don't know him yet. Relationships that we cultivate, not because they're our project. Nobody wants to be a project but relationships that God has blessed our life with, that we get to be a part of, that if we're doing it right, if we're living the right way, if we are brave enough to talk about the love that Jesus gave to us, it changes everything for that person as well. And if you're wondering who those might be in your life, we say something every week. There's nothing so dead that God cannot resurrect it. There's nothing so broken that he cannot mend it. And there's nothing so lost that he cannot find it. Where are the broken pieces in your life? Where are the people that when you look around, you see that they're broken and hurting? Where they, they feel lost and confused? What if Jesus put you in their life so that you can bring them to him? He's already pursuing them, I assure you. But maybe you're the one that he wants to use as his mouthpiece. Maybe your hands are the ones that he wants to use to love them. Maybe your cooking is the one that he wants to use to warm them. Maybe it's your mouth that he wants to use to speak love and truth over them. And maybe it's you today. Maybe you find yourselves as the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, and you want so badly to be found. We would love to walk into that relationship with you. We would love to walk beside you. All you need is five seconds of courage and go out to the lobby. We have this book. We'll give it to you. It's free. It's a gift for you. It's called This Changes Everything. It's a 21-day journal that will start walking you through what it might be like to be in relationship to Jesus. So if you are wondering if Jesus really is who he says he is, this is yours. We'd love to meet you out there, and we'll even follow up with you. We'd love to talk to you and answer your questions. Bring all your doubts. Bring all your concerns, bring them all, and I, I assure you, Jesus really will change everything. And for the rest of us, maybe we need Jesus to change everything again in us. Maybe we need to have him change how we see the people around us. 
Maybe we need to open our eyes to see who God has put in our lives that he wants to redeem because the love he's given us will spill over into them. Will you stand with me as we close today? If you're a guest with us today, thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you came and worshiped with us. Um, your, your presence matters. Because of you, there is a dollar that will go to somebody who really needs it. Thank you for your generosity. Because you give, we can do all kinds of things, and we get to walk into some of these places and spaces where things are dark and broken. So thank you for that. And if you just wanna put your hands out like this, we close every week with a blessing, and this is just a posture of receiving. May you walk around this week feeling so loved by God that you can't help but spill out onto other people. May he open your eyes to see the relationships he's given you that he wants to redeem. And may you feel that freedom in the redemption he's already given you. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.